Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we praise your name. We thank you for giving us your only Son to be our King, to be our Savior, to be our Lord. And we thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit, who is our teacher and our comforter, the one who illuminates the eyes of our hearts. And so, Father, we pray that by your Spirit and for the glory of your Son, you would open our eyes now that we might behold wonderful things in your beautiful Word. And we pray that what we know not, we ask that you would teach us. And what we have not, we pray that you would please give us. And what we are not, we pray that you would please make us. All for the glory and praise of your dearly beloved Son, who lives and who reigns with you now, together with the Holy Spirit, one God, forever blessed and forever praised. Amen. I imagine most of us have been to the eye doctor before. I can remember sitting in the big chair at the eye doctor's office, leaning forward and looking through that strange contraption with all the different lenses in it. Uh, I looked it up and it's called a, a phoropter, a phoropter. Um, and I, I would look through that phoropter and the doctor would begin asking me to, to read off the smallest row of letters on the eye chart and the, the eye doctor would flip and adjust the lenses until I could see the bottom line clearly. And I can remember many times I would go in for my annual eye checkup pretty confident that my vision prescription was just fine, only later to realize that I actually needed a much stronger prescription. My vision had become distorted, and I didn't even realize it. I didn't realize it until my eye doctor showed me evidence of my distortion and then helped to correct my vision. This morning, Pastor James would like to give each one of us an eye exam. James wrote this short letter inspired by the Holy Spirit in order to help his scattered audience to become more mature and complete followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Pastor James provides us with faithful wisdom from above that helps each one of us to pursue Christ-likeness and at the same time helps us to shun worldliness. You remember that was the last thing Pastor James warned us about at the end of chapter 1, was to be on guard against the filthy stain of worldliness. Chapter 1, verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And notice this, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so in our passage for this morning, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, Pastor James describes a situation where worldliness has crept into the church. Worldliness isn't just a modern problem. Worldliness has always been an enemy of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in this particular example, worldliness has crept into the church in the form of partiality. 
partiality in the church is an expression of worldliness in the church. And so Pastor James provides us with yet another test that each one of us needs to take if we would be mature followers of Jesus Christ. You can call this the partiality test. Last week, you'll remember James asked to see our tongues. He said, show me your tongues. Well, this week, James gives us uh, an eye exam of sorts, a vision test. And the question he poses to us this morning is, do you look at others through the eyes of the world or through the eyes of grace? And how you answer that question really determines whether or not you pass the partiality test or whether or not you fail it. Let's allow Pastor James to walk us through this spiritual eye exam this morning as he strives to correct our vision. So let's begin reading along in James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, brothers and sisters, in order to help us to not show partiality, James corrects three distorted views. First, he corrects a distorted view of the Lord Jesus in verse 1. A distorted view of the Lord Jesus in verse 1. And then James corrects a distorted view of the poor and the rich in verses 2 to 7. 
a distorted view of the poor and the rich in verses 2 to 7. And then number 3, James corrects a distorted view of the royal law in verses 8 to 13. A distorted view of the royal law. And my prayer for each one of us this morning is that the Lord of glory would mercifully give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Number one, let's see how James corrects this distorted view of the Lord of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ in verse one. Notice in verse one, James says, my brothers show no partiality or your Bible may say favoritism or uh, other translations render this prejudice, show no partiality or favoritism or prejudice as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. This is the most important verse in this passage because this verse really summarizes the whole section. What James says in this verse is faith and favoritism are incompatible. You can't you can't be holding faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and at the same time be showing favoritism. They, they don't go together. They are incompatible. Everything else in this passage illustrates, supports, and explains and applies verse 1. Favoritism, James says, has no place in any family, especially the family of faith, the family of God, the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Partiality or favoritism is when you treat another person better than another person based upon external considerations, their physical appearance, uh, their wealth, their social status, their ethnicity, whatever you want to call it. That's what favoritism is. That's what partiality is. And James warns believers from practicing this sin of partiality. A Christian who practices partiality, according to James, is a walking contradiction. Now, we show favoritism, we show partiality when we're impressed with people. We don't tend to show partiality towards people that we're not impressed with. James is going to illustrate this in verses 2 and following with the rich man who enters the assembly, the synagogue, the, the gathering of the believers there. But we're too easily impressed with people. I think that's important for us to note. What people wear or how people look or who people know, that's really important in, in this area, who people know. What people know, what prestige or position a person might have, where that person lives, who, who that person works for. When we're impressed by all of these external things, all of these outward appearances, all of these achievements, we can be tempted to play favorites with them, to treat them preferentially over and against someone who doesn't have those things. And James says that practicing partiality is contrary to the Christian faith. So, one solution that we need to pay attention to is hinted at right there in verse 1. 
How do we guard against this form of worldliness in the church? The solution, according to James in verse 1, is to stop fixating on others and to become more impressed and more enamored and more amazed and more astounded with the Lord Jesus Christ, whom James refers to as the Lord of glory. James wants to correct our vision, and partiality cannot flourish if we keep our eyes fixed on the one whom we should be impressed with, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He wants us to fix our eyes on Christ, the only person that we ought to be impressed with in the church is Christ. He is the one who is robed in majesty. He's the one who is sat down in heaven at the Father's right hand. He is risen and exalted and ruling and reigning as the King of glory. Myriads and myriads of angels are singing praises to His name. It's His glorious scepter that sways over all nations, over all the earth, over viruses, over stars and galaxies. He is the sovereign and supreme one who's working all things according to the counsel of his will. He is the king. He is the Lord. He is the glorious one. He is the one whom Isaiah saw who is high and lifted up and who is seated on a throne and the whole host of heaven declares, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and the whole earth is filled with His glory. O Christian, are you enamored with Jesus? Are you enthralled by His majesty? Are you amazed at the splendor of Christ's holiness? Are you astounded, brothers and sisters, by His greatness? Are you struck speechless with the marvels of His condescending grace towards you? When John Calvin was commenting on this verse, he said this, quote, The brightness of Christ Jesus is so great that it easily extinguishes all the glories of the world. And that is true. We will not be impressed by the outward externals of the people around us in a sinful way if we fix our eyes upon Christ. There's an old hymn that says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. And that's what James does to correct our vision in verse 1. My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That brings us to point number two, a a distorted view of the poor and the rich in verses two to seven. In these verses, James 
does a couple things. First, he provides an illustration of favoritism or partiality in the church, and then he provides a series of arguments against partiality in order to correct our distorted views of the poor and the rich. So let's begin in verses 2 to 4. I'm going to summarize the scene. I read it earlier, and I want to just summarize it to, to give a sense of what James is saying. So imagine this. It's, it's Sunday morning. Uh, the service is about to start, and suddenly a, a rich man, we'll call him Mr. Goldfinger, uh, Mr. Goldfinger walks into the assembly, walks into the to the assembled gathering there of believers. In James's day, it was a synagogue. That's where these Jewish Christians were meeting. But uh, we, could, we could call it an assembly today. And, uh, and all of a sudden, we noticed that this man's got some fancy colored robes on. He's got some shiny bling, some shiny jewelry on his fingers. And suddenly, the ushering team is running up to Mr. Goldfinger he looks really important, and they're trying to get him a front row seat, you know, the best seat in the house. And at the same time, on the other side of the room, a poor man walks in. He's not dressed like Mr. Goldfinger. He's got shabby clothes on. His clothes are dirty. He's filthy. He stinks. He smells. Nobody offers him a seat. People are kind of avoiding looking at him. Nobody wants him to sit on the front row. Uh, and so, you know, one of the folks says to the to the man, "Hey, hey, sorry. Look, uh, you, you need to stand over there in the corner. There's no seats left for you, buddy. Um, uh, you can sit down on the floor if you want." This is a situation that is absolutely ridiculous. So James describes this scene with over-the-top language. It, it's just ridiculous. It, it, it's almost unbelievable. But James wants us to see how wrong this is. He, he says in verse 4 that this kind of judging, this kind of partiality is not just wrong, it's evil. Verse 4. If, if this happens, he says, verse 4, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James says that his readers have made distinctions. They've become judges. That's what happens when, when you show partiality. You make yourself into a judge, and then you, you pass a sinful judgment on someone else based merely upon external evidence. And James does not mince words. He calls this evil. It's wicked. And what James helps us to see is that when we show partiality, it's not just an eye problem, it's a heart problem. Brothers and sisters, James wants us to ponder the question, how do you look at others? How do you view your neighbor? How do you view others in the church? Do you look at others through the eyes of the world or through the eyes of grace? That's the key question we have to ask ourselves. Do, do you look at others through the eyes of the world 
or through the eyes of grace. As you read through the Gospels, you have to notice how Jesus Christ treated people during his earthly ministry. James, of course, Jesus' younger brother, one of them at least, would have noticed the way that Jesus treated other people. And if you think about it, rich people, poor people, they all drew near to Jesus. Tax collectors, prostitutes, rich men, poor widows, religious leaders, children, educated people, ignorant people, Jews, Gentiles. Jesus saw all people, both rich and poor, as those in desperate need of grace. And Jesus looked at everyone, everyone he met, through the eyes of grace. Jesus didn't just look at outward appearances like man. He, as the Son of God, looked upon the heart. Jesus didn't look at people through the eyes of the world. He looked at other people through the eyes of grace. And that's what James wants us to do as well. And in order to encourage us to look at others through the eyes of grace, James marshals out two arguments to show us how wrong it is to practice partiality. Look at verses 5 to 7. First, James makes a theological argument against partiality. Look at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you, you have dishonored the poor man. Just note a couple of things in these verses. James is not saying that everyone who is poor in the world is a Christian. James is saying that God has chosen poor people. And you could probably say most of the believers in the world are poor. That was true in James's day. It's true today. But the point is, is that He's contrasting the the way that God has honored those who are poor by choosing them to be in His kingdom, choosing them to be in His family, over and against the way that apparently James's readers were showing dishonor towards the poor. The the, the illustration that James gave earlier wasn't just a hypothetical, because in verse 6 he says, You have dishonored the poor man. And so he's saying God has treated the poor man like this. He's chosen them to be rich in faith. That's how we know that they're believers and to be heirs of the kingdom. But on the contrary, you have dishonored the poor man. And so James corrects the way that we look at poor believers. James says, in the eyes of the world, the poor man who trusts in Jesus is still poor. But through the eyes of grace, we see that the poor man, the poor believer, is incredibly rich. He's rich in faith, and he is an heir 
of the King of glory because the King has promised a kingdom to all of those who love Him. Second, notice that James, he doesn't just make a theological argument. He makes a logical and a practical argument. Um, Look at verse 6. He says, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? You see, James makes a very practical, logical argument. He's basically saying, why would you show partiality? Why on earth would you play favorites with the very same rich people who are oppressing you and hauling you to court and blaspheming the name of Christ? Why would you try to curry favor with these non-Christians who have money and they're actually the ones who are, who are oppressing you? James wants to correct the way that we see rich unbelievers. Um, rich unbelievers don't need our partiality. They need saving grace. They need the gospel. And so when you look at these rich people, this would be a good uh, exercise for us. When we look around, whether it's on social media, whether it's in the, in the movies or in television or whatever, and we see wealthy people who have everything that the world has to offer, and yet they hate the gospel, they despise Christianity, they despise the Lord Jesus Christ, that ought to evoke not a desire to show partiality towards them and to curry favor with them, but rather for them to find grace in Jesus Christ. Their souls are poor, despite what their pocketbooks may have. Their bank account may be very large, but they are poor. They are poor and they need God's saving grace in Jesus. And so James corrects our distorted view of both the poor and the rich. He helps us to see that when we fail to welcome the poor believer the one who's dressed in filthy clothes, we fail to remember that Christ welcomed us. When we were poor, when we were filthy, when we were dressed in the rags of unrighteousness, our dear Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory, He welcomed us. He he received us. He welcomed us with His arms wide open. And He looked upon us in the stench of our sin. And He saw us through the eyes of grace. And so, brothers and sisters, one practical takeaway from us for this in this passage is that anytime you walk into a room, whether it's in the church or anywhere else, anytime you walk into a room and you look at others, we want to avoid the temptation to begin making partial distinctions. We, we, we walk into a room and we begin to divide the room up and say rich, poor, black, white, old, young, educated, uneducated, Democrat, Republican, etc. That's the way the world acts. That's the way the world sees. But for the Christian, when we walk into a room, when we look at others, we should see first and foremost our neighbor. We should look at our neighbor through the eyes 
of grace. We should look at our neighbor and say to ourselves, made in the image and likeness of God, just like me. Fallen in Adam, just like me. In need of the amazing grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, just like me. And brothers and sisters, that, that way of looking at people will help us to guard against the worldly stain of partiality. It's only when we remember our own need of grace that we will look at others through the eyes of grace. And so, Pastor James corrects a distorted view of the Lord Jesus and a distorted view of the rich and the poor. And then thirdly and finally, James corrects a a, a view, a distorted view of the royal law in verses 8 to 13. So let's look at that, that part of the passage together. If we would be mature followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, We've got to see Him rightly, we've got to see our neighbor rightly, and we've got to see God's Word rightly. And it's that latter sight correction that James wants to provide for us in verses 8 to 13. He he helps us look through the lens of Scripture. He provides a scriptural argument, a biblical basis against showing partiality. And you you can see this in verse 8. Um, You could summarize his argument in verse 8 as basically this. Partiality violates the Lord's royal command to love our neighbor. So if the image, if you want to have an image in your mind, uh, maybe if if you've ever seen a boxing match, you know, you've got in one corner, you've got uh, the sin of partiality, okay? Uh, And partiality has been trained by the devil. It's of hell. And then in the other corner, uh, the, 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 the defending heavyweight champion in the other corner is the, the, the law of the royal law of love, right? So this is a, a battle between partiality and love. And that's what he's going to show us in verse 8. He says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. Verse 9, but if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So notice a few things about verse 8. Notice that James calls the command to love your neighbor as yourself. He calls it the royal law. Another way to render that phrase is the law of the king. I take this to be a synonym of what James has said earlier when he referred to the law of liberty. Um, verse two, this royal law of uh, number two, this royal law of loving of loving one's neighbor, James says there in verse eight that it's according to scripture. And he supports that claim by saying in number three, um, he quotes from Leviticus 19, 18. He quotes from Leviticus 19.18. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what James is saying is that if you're you're loving your neighbor, that's great. That's exactly what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to follow the royal law. You're doing well. But verse 9 says, if you're showing partiality, then you're not loving your neighbor. You're violating the royal law, the law of the king, and you're committing sin, and you're convicted by the law as a transgressor. 
So what's going on here? I believe when James refers to the command to love your neighbor as yourself as the royal law, as the law of the king, I think James is doing that because he wants us to remember the teaching of his older brother, our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of glory. Now, you remember when Jesus was asked, you know, what's the greatest commandment? You remember what he said. He replied and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And then he said, and the second is like it. And he quoted Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So in other words, what James is doing is that he's calling believers, those who are heirs of the kingdom, verse 5, those who are followers of the king, the Lord of glory, verse 1, to obey his royal law, the law of the king, the law of Christ. And I think that when James quotes from Leviticus 19, he knows, he knows that just a few verses earlier, right before Leviticus says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, we read in Leviticus 19.15, you shall not be partial. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor I am the Lord. And so the law of the king reflects the character of the king. The Lord Jesus is not partial and neither should his people be. So showing partiality then is a serious sin because it breaks this royal law of love that we as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ have received directly from our king. Now at this point, James kind of, uh, uh, he, he, he tries to, to cut off a, an objection that might be raised. Now so, some people might be thinking, well, wait a second, really? I mean, is James not making something a big deal out of something that's not that serious? I mean, is partiality really that big of a deal? I mean, is partiality really wicked? If, if I were to ask somebody, or even a Christian, hey, name all the things that, that you would say are evil sins. I mean, are, is, the, is partiality going to be in the top hundred? Probably not. And so James is saying, you know, if we, if we, if we discriminate just once, we're lawbreakers. Um, it's not like we've murdered someone. It's not like you cheating on your wife or something, right? Well, look what he says in verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Verse 11, For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become transgressor, a transgressor of the law. So James mentions, James mentions the seventh and the eighth, or excuse me, the seventh and the sixth commandment. And I think he mentions those commandments because, brothers and sisters, those commandments are a practical expression of the royal law of Christ. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you break the sixth commandment, you're not loving your neighbor. If you break the sixth, seventh commandment, you're not loving your neighbor. And that's, that's his whole argument in this section. And so the Lord Jesus, the King of glory, he taught clearly 
in the Sermon on the Mount that the, uh, that the abiding significance of God's law as fulfilled in Christ in his life, death, and resurrection and the significance of the law of Christ as a rule of life for all of those who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ in the new covenant. And under the new covenant, uh, excuse me, under the old covenant, the Lord said to his people, do this and live. But our King of glory under the new covenant says to us, live and do this. And so we can't pick and choose which laws to obey because our King commands us in his royal law to love your neighbor as yourself. And James says, James says, it's the will of God for his people as an indivisible whole. If we, we violate one part of it, we're at odds with all of it. And so James summarizes in verse 12. He gives us the application of all this. He says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Brothers and sisters, this is such a convicting passage. As we read this passage, um, all of us have fallen short. I hope, I hope you see that. Um, there isn't a single one of us who can say before God that we haven't been guilty of showing partiality. And what James is saying to us, he's saying, listen, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, your speech and your actions have to line up. Be constantly speaking and always acting as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, the law of liberty. And in your actions and in your words, James is saying, don't play favorites, don't show partiality, don't judge others. Instead, show mercy towards your neighbor. Show mercy towards others as one who desires to be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. James says to us, live and love today in light of the day of judgment, knowing that for the Christian, mercy triumphs over judgment. Before we close, let me give you a few brief motivations from the text to help you, to serve you in loving others impartially. Really quickly, I have five. First, be captivated by the glory of Jesus Christ. Verse 1. Number two, be gripped by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Verse 5. God chose us when we were poor to be heirs of the kingdom. Number three, be devoted to the law of Christ the King. Be devoted to what Christ calls us to in His Word. Verse 8. Number four, be mindful of of the judgment to come, verse 12. And number five, be mindful of the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, verse 13. What a great word that is, that mercy triumphs over judgment. It is such good news this morning that there is more mercy in Christ than sin in you and sin in me. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, 
He shows no partiality. We see that over and over again in Scripture. He's perfect. And James, just like his brother Jesus, wants us to be perfect even as our Heavenly Father is perfect. But we aren't perfect, are we? None of us have lived perfect lives. Think about all the times that you have judged others sinfully based on their outward appearances. Think of all the times that you've practiced prejudice or partiality or discrimination against other people made in God's image. And James calls this action evil. He calls it sin. And each one of us is utterly guilty before God. Each one of us is a transgressor. We stand convicted in God's holy sight. We stand in need of mercy. And so each one of us this morning should be quick to humble ourselves before the Lord and confess our sins before Him and repent of any partiality in our lives and to ask Him for forgiveness. For the Lord is compassionate and full of mercy. James 5.11 Each one of us should be quick to say this morning, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. But dear ones, listen to the good news that James has for us this morning. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphed over judgment on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Brothers and sisters, did you know that our Lord Jesus wore a fancy robe once? That exact phrase that James uses in verse 2 for a rich man's fancy clothing It's only used a handful of times in the New Testament. And it's used in Luke 23, verse 11, to describe what our Lord Jesus wore when He stood before Herod. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing Him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated Him with contempt and mocked Him. And then arraying Jesus in splendid clothing, in a gorgeous robe. He sent him back to Pilate. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, was treated with contempt. He humbly endured this mocking and shame. He was vilified and spat upon, and he wore that gorgeous robe right before he went to be crucified. And on that cross, He died in our place for our sins, for all of our sins, even for the times when we've passed evil judgment on others, when we've passed judgment and shown partiality against the poor ones and the shabby ones. But three days later, brothers and sisters, our King of glory rose again. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake, He became poor so that you, through His poverty, might become rich. Brothers and sisters, mercy has triumphed over judgment in Jesus Christ our Lord. So lift your eyes 
to the King. Lift your eyes to the King of glory and know that He looks upon you. He looks upon all who trust in Him, all who turn from their sins, all who come to Him by faith for forgiveness. He looks upon you this morning with the eyes of grace. Look to Him and come to Him this morning. He is gentle and lowly in heart and He promises to give rest for your weary soul. And know that when we love the poor ones and when we love the shabby ones in our midst, on that last day when we stand before the King of glory, when we are clothed in His righteousness alone, we will hear the King say, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, you so love the world that you gave your only Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And so we pray you would pour into our hearts this morning the most excellent gift of your love by your Holy Spirit so that we would delight in the inheritance of the kingdom that is ours as your sons and daughters and that we might live for your glory and your praise. Through Jesus Christ our Lord we ask. Amen.